Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And filling in for the absent Noah Rothman, our Washington commentary columnist, AEI scholar, and uh, all-around man about town, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. There's no way I could ever fill in for Noah Rothman. The Aww. least I could do is is con- contribute uh, in, in the hope that uh, I might establish some insights akin to his. Okay, so listen, Matt. So uh, you weren't on the you weren't on the podcast yesterday, and we went into an extensive discussion of the vaccine passport idea and various other questions about herd immunity. Christine and Abe both very skeptical to uh, very concerned about the vaccine passport notion. Uh, uh, their concerns reflected by certain red state politicians in particular Ron DeSantis, Christy Noem, and some others about how this is the, you know, the sort of tentacles of the state reaching people and that it's not fair, uh, all of that. And um, we got emails in response to my support of the vaccine passport. My support, by the way, the vaccine passport is not uh, considered or, you know, studied or anything like that. It's more like, I don't like you people who aren't going to get the vaccine, so I want you to suffer because uh, it's been a year and I want to get the hell out of this period that we're in. And if you are going to interfere with that out of some misguided sense of, you know, uh, uh, either some kind of weird anti-vaccine mood or whatever else, uh, fine for you. So you, what you are doing in doing this is impinging on my ability and the ability of America to get back into the full swing of life. And I don't like you and I'm mad at you. And I want you to have to have this vaccine passport precisely because you don't like it. I'm just trying to express my emotions here, which is like, don't make this harder. I've been, we've been spending a year complaining about blue state nanny, neurotic, you know, crazy people making it impossible for kids to go to playgrounds. By the way, I'm in Chicago. I just want to share this out of nowhere. So I'm in Chicago. It's a year, right? Since, since basically everything shut down. I take my 10 year old son to Maggie Daly park, this magnificent, you know, billion dollar park in, uh, you know, in sort of downtown Chicago where they built, uh, you know, there's a Frank Gary, uh, boo this, and there's that. And then they have this fantastic multi tiered playground. Um, it's still closed. It's a year. It's still closed. It's an outdoor playground. It's closed. They can't get to it. You know, I paid $14 for parking in the Millennium Park garage. Come out. You can't get into the playground because I don't know why. Because Lori Lightfoot is mayor and she's an idiot. I I don't know what the reasons are. It's insane. I want the vaccine passport so my son can go to this goddamn playground. I mean, that that's part of what I'm talking about here. Anyway, we get these emails. And uh, we got four or five emails of people. I love your podcast. I listen to your podcast. And Abe, as you said, there were were sort of two elements in the complaint that was issued largely against me, since, of course, Christine and Abe are horrible squishes on this matter and have civil liberties concerns and all that kind of thing. 
So, hey, what were yeah. the two? Uh, what were the two complaints? There are sort of two different objections um, to to your position. One was that um, while uh, the person complaining was not uh, an anti-vaxxer in any traditional sense, the fact is that the mRNA technology is unproven. We don't know uh, what sort of p- potential long-term effects there are. Or, or there could be, um, and we're just nowhere near knowing that because it's such new, it's such a, a new development. Um, so that's that. So, so they're fearful of that. Um, but by the way, J and J is is not mRNA, so they could they could opt to take that, but they didn't mention that. Um, and the other complaint um, is that uh, look, I uh, I'm not anti anti vaxxer. I'm not a crazy person. I'm not this. I'm not that. I've simply assessed my risks uh in terms of the virus uh i'm youngish i'm healthy it's unlikely i'll get it if i get it it's unlikely i'll get very sick and it's even more unlikely it'll die so why bother to go put this thing in my body that i don't need i'm perfectly willing to take the risk to get it right okay so these are the two attitudes uh matt um you uh you uh as you were just telling me you kind of share my I would say post-rational support of of the vaccine passport in the screw them, screw them, like you're making, you're going to make things harder for us to get back to normal. So I don't care what your objections are. That's where I am. Anyway, Matt, how do you respond to these two, um, I think, somewhat disingenuous claims? I, 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 I hesitate to say they're disingenuous because I don't know why somebody would sit down and write us a long-considered email if they're concerned or disingenuous, except that they want to make they want to convince themselves that they're not anti-vaxxers, while their view is actually, I would say, you know, fundamentally anti-vax, which is I don't know what's what they're putting into my body. So I that's why. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, on the first one with the uh, mRNA uh, issue, uh, you know, uh, I don't. I don't know if an asteroid is going to hit us uh, in the future. But what I do know is that all the evidence shows that these vaccines are extremely effective. I mean, they're extremely effective and they have very little side effects, extremely small side effects. So I think the vaccines are safe and effective. And I and as Abe points out, the J&J one is not mRNA uh, and it is also safe and effective. Um, and on the second thing, uh, the idea that, uh, you know, uh, while I'm I'm not as much at, at risk as other people, um, so I don't feel I need the vaccine. I think that is an example, you know, Tocqueville would call it, uh, or to paraphrase Tocqueville, of self-interest wrongly understood, uh, simply because you, it's true, you, you could go your whole life without getting COVID. Uh, but on the off chance that you do get it and you become infectious, or even if you have an asymptomatic case, which um, are in some ways the most worrisome, you could spread the disease to someone uh, who could have severe, severe effects and, uh, and possibly death for it. So look, th- there are public health measures where we require vaccines, especially in the public schools. I don't think, I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest we might have a similar, um, uh, uh, bar, uh, to reopen our economy. And people say, well, it's unprecedented. So is COVID. So is the COVID year. This is ridiculous. I'm with you on this part, John, which is that we need to stop this soon, you know, and anything I'm open to things 
that will allow us to stop this soon and get back to some um, uh, resemblance of normal life. And finally, just, uh, you know, one thing that maybe it's not so offensive to me, the idea is that uh, I've long been uh, an advocate of a national ID card for a variety of reasons. The debate started after 9-11 as a way to um, uh, ease uh, uh, transportation, uh, you know, to get into the airports uh, quicker and also to have a sense of who's in the country uh, legally and not, which is another reason I'm for it as an opponent of illegal immigration. I think this would help um, uh, help us establish a nationwide E-Verify system uh, and to cut down on illegal immigrant labor. Um, and so it seems to me there'd be no reason why you could have a check there saying that you've been vaccinated against COVID-19, which is, you know, which is, uh, which is of a degree high, you know, it's, it's a d- disease that's similar to polio, to measles, to all of these, uh, diseases that we, that we have established, uh, vaccination protocols, uh, for in the past. You know, I think it's one of the things that's interesting about the the particularities of a passport debate, both on the right and the left, is that it. I think it's thrown into high relief just how uh, changed our our national debate about civil liberties has become, particularly on the right. Um, you know, you have organizations like the ACLU, which now no longer will will defend the speech of people who politically they disagree with. So that that's new. But on the right, you do. We we were discussing this before we started recording, but there's a there's a long standing tradition of suspicion about any sort of federal government uh, project that enlists citizens in identification. So I grew up among a pretty fringy group of fundamentalist Christians who did not like the supermarket scanners and thought that that was going to be the precursor to the mark of the beast that the you know would be used by some global system to oppress us. I mean, I'm not kidding. These are these very nice people believe this, like this idea that if you can track and tag people in any way, shape or form, they, their liberty is at risk is a genuine undercurrent in, in uh, American history and certainly on the right. So the, what frustrated me about what DeSantis said yesterday, actually, is that he's it's becoming a culture war issue if it hasn't become one already. He should have offered an alternative because I think Abe would agree with me that we're not saying there shouldn't be some way to prove that you've been vaccinated in order to do certain things in order to protect public health in general. But a federally government controlled, you know, digital tracker on your phone might not be the best thing. And it might also not encompass the interests and concerns of all Americans. I look, I agree with that. And I, I have no problem with this. We began this conversation about the yesterday about the New York state Excelsior Passport, which is literally an app on your phone that's going to say, yes, you got the vaccine according to the records of New York State, right? So that is not a federal. It is state. It is Andrew Cuomo. So we all hate Andrew Cuomo and he's awful. And now, uh, you know, a, it's 278th woman just said he stuck her tongue down her throat and it's, it's terrible. And he, and I've been saying he's terrible for 30 years and now you, now you all know what I've been saying and all of that. But the whole point was just, He's going to open up, he's trying to open up ballparks and places like that. And he wanted there to be a simple way for people to walk into the ballpark and say, I've gotten the vaccine so that like you don't have to get rapid tested at the, you know, at, at the, at the opening gate of Yankee Stadium. That seems to me to be a fair compromise. It's not a federal 330 million person database and in particular if you take a state like south south dakota or wyoming or something it really that's really going to be nothing um since those you know it's just a way of of having an independent uh indication that you are somebody that they can let in and maybe then you all don't everybody in the same doesn't have to wear a mask 
for example. We can get to that about the efficacy of the vaccine. Uh, Abe, sorry. Uh, so at the risk of dragging on the, the debate a little longer, um, John, you had made the point that, you know, one of the reasons that you would like to see this is that, for example, this way you could take your kids to the, the uh, playground or, you know, um, and show proof of vaccination. So part of what I fear about it is that I have no faith that kids, for example, would be counted the way you'd like them to be counted uh, in, in, a, in a vaccine passport world, right? Because they're not going to get vaccinated, at least not anytime soon. Um, and you have this enti- entire constituency who, like, you know, has reasons to call to call think of them as sort of spreaders, right? Um, because they don't want the the schools back to reopen. So I so it, it could actually you know sort of work against you in that way. Okay, I I, I agree with you. And my point, the reason that I began this. Uh, in a tone of self-mockery, is that I, uh, my, my point is that um, I've had to spend a year, I am not afraid of COVID. I will I just stipulate this. I, I am not, I have many other neuroses, but for some reason, disease is not one of them. And I've never been afraid of getting it. I'm not afraid of getting it. I didn't get it. I got vaccinated. I'm fine. But I wore the mask, and I did what I thought was a reasonable, what I consider reasonable middle ground, which is I'm not a doctor, I'm not a, I don't know, you, you, you live in a society, and you therefore have to sort of follow the rules that make everybody else comfortable. This is what it's like, and and all of that, and then to be told largely by people on my own side, and my guess is a lot of people who found mask mandates and all of that other stuff also draconian and totalitarian. They don't want to wear masks. They don't want to do that. They don't want this. They don't want the other thing. They want to live in Florida where you don't have to do a lot of stuff and all of that. And now they don't want vaccine passports. There is a kind of denialism, and there's been a denialism about COVID from the beginning. That's like Richard Epstein saying only 5,000 people were going to die, or Scott Atlas saying it isn't really that contagious, or there's a whole world of opinion that seems to me to be on a continuum from denialism in 2020 about the seriousness of the vaccine to the present where people are objecting to the notion that there should, there might, it might be helpful for there to be independent evidence that there has been vaccination. These are the same people. They're not different people. And so their motives and motivations seem to me to be, I'm suspect maybe the wrong word, but they're operating on the basis of a desire not to believe that this is the fundamental civilizational crisis that it in fact is and has been, and that measures need to be taken to get us out of the crisis, that people, a lot of these people don't seem to be willing to take any measures to get out of the crisis. And this is the latest measure that they don't want to take. Yeah, I, I mean, I, to that point, John, I mean, you, you're just, you're illustrating how the degree to which COVID has become a part of the, the culture war and how the culture war defines our politics. And so, even the debate about the vaccination passports is um, kind of academic because the way that uh, American politics is structured, it's becoming it's becoming a reality. Would be very difficult, I think, um, because because attitudes toward the disease are now um, broken down on partisan ideological lines, um, and, and it's uh, 
it, it, it's disheartening for those of us who would like to put put this behind us. But if, I also agree with Abe. It's not just the right, you know, um, who's being irrational. And, and I mean, clearly the left uh, on the subject of kids and on the subject of schools, on the subject of outdoor playgrounds, you know, that's not the right that mandated that closure right. in Chicago. They are just as insane. They're, they're, they're just as irrational. Um, and this is, this is, this is a real dilemma that I don't think uh, certainly Joe Biden isn't going to solve it. Well, and that was just one more, one beat on that. If I, yes, if I may absolutely. not, to, not to defend the anti-vax, uh, anti-vax mentality, which John, I agree you laid out very well. And that is a problem. It's to say that the, the, the messaging from this administration and from the left, even when Trump was in office, was so inconsistent that I think some people's response was to throw up their hands and say, I'm just going to say no to all of it because don't wear a mask, wear a mask, wear three masks, wear two masks. Once you're vaccinated, you can't do anything. You can't hug grandma. You still must wear a triple mask. I mean, that I think if you're just the average person who's not delving deeply into both the politics and the details of this, that's not an irrational response. It's rational to be like, I have no idea what's going on. Clearly, neither do they. This is all politics. I'm out. So I have some sympathy, even though I think think that from a public health perspective, it's worrisome. I am totally in agreement with you. And I'm sorry if we've gotten now to minute 17 of this podcast and we haven't had a moment to stop and reflect on precisely the way in which the country has been driven crazy by the public health messaging, which has been a continuing topic on this podcast for the year that we've been doing it five days a week from the outset. We have a public health messaging system that assumes bad faith is speaking often in bad faith with a, with a larger, you know, monumental, wonderful purpose of saving lives and all of this, but says whatever it feels needs to be said in order to control and frighten populations into doing what it has decided at that moment is important. And we just got this yesterday from this administration and behavior that I consider outrageous and unseemly, both by CDC Director Rochelle Walensky and by the President of the United States yesterday, two different appearances in which Walensky, holding back her tears, right, said, we're on the verge of doom. At the same time that we're hearing that we're getting to three million doses in arms a day and that we should be in a position where at some point in the next eight weeks, every single person in America who chooses to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. That's months earlier than anybody had been led to believe. And once again, instead of celebrating this as, a, as an achievement and suggesting that we are on the path to escape, we are told by, the, by the, one of the leading medical officials of the United States government that we are on the verge of an epic catastrophe. Now, is that good messaging for a moment at which you are trying to turn people like the people who are emailing us to the position that they should, even if they are feeling hesitant, get vaccinated because it's really the best thing for everybody. It's no skin off their nose. It's not going to make them sick. It's not going to kill them. And this is a better way out. It's horrible. And then what did Biden do? Biden came out again and said, I beg you to reimpose mask mandates. When what happened in Texas after the mask mandate? It's now 19 days since Texas lifted its mask mandate and caseload has dropped by half. 
Now, why? We don't know why. Heat, weather, good weather. I, I mean, you know, whatever. <clears throat> what the president said we needed to do has been disproven by the results, the actual hard macro data results of what is going on in the second most populous state in the United States. The real world has responded. I mean, this is the part where we, and we also have some, some uh, evidence from real world use of the vaccine. When you live in the real world and you look around the real world and it's, it, you see the evidence of your own eyes and then you listen to the president of the United States tell you something else, that undermines uh, any sort of confidence one might have in their government. And to what the Rochelle Walensky point, she's particularly egregious because months before she became the CDC director, she was she was singing a really different tune as a public health official, talking about how schools can and should reopen, how it was safe even before vaccination. As soon as she has political power, she starts saying something else that is corrupting to any sort of idea of accepting trust in our government. Right. I mean, it's not just that it's as soon as she has political power. It's as it's the first time since she's come into power that case numbers are rising. This is a political problem for the Biden administration if case numbers continue to arrive. They have been going down since he took office. They have had the acceleration of the vaccinations happening under his watch. His COVID approval numbers are extremely high, up to 70, 70%, I think, in um, the latest uh, Reuters Ipsos poll. If you have a surge, all of a sudden people are going to start saying, oh, well, maybe Biden isn't doing such a good job. I think that's the impending doom <laughs> that right, the right. administration senses. All of a sudden, you're going to have a surge in cases, especially what are the states that are hardest hit? You kind of alluded to this. New York, New Jersey, and Michigan. Oh, I'm sorry. Those are the states that have had the tightest lockdowns for the entire year. And now they're having the, the, the this latest surge. They're leading the way. Where Texas, I was just in Texas as, as it happens last week. You know, I always thought the the media was making too much of Abbott's um, rescind, uh, you know, rescinding That's the Governor Abbott of Texas. Yeah, yeah. The, the mask mandate, <laughs> because uh, many of these protocols are established by local government or, or independent business. And so, when I was in Texas, the hotel I stayed at, you had to have the mask on. The airport I was in—that's the Biden thing. Uh, so I had to have a mask in there. And many of the restaurants, if you didn't have outdoor seating. Uh, you had to have the mask. Now, the capacity limits he also raised, so there are more people in restaurants. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the weather is nice. I, I really am one of these kind of simplistic people who think so much of this is driven simply by the weather. Um, and we've had we've had warmer weather in the south, the colder weather in the north in recent weeks. Um, but that but, is not simplistic. That is virus one hundred and one. Viruses yeah. do worse well, I in warm weather. The, the warm weather. Yeah, destroys Dr. viruses. Dr. Walensky should talk about that then, rather, yes. <laughs> rather than having having a, a kind of a panic attack on, yeah. on, on national television. Also, isn't it the case, and I, I know that cases went up in Israel as the vaccinations increased. So there's kind of this, there's this like a final surge that seems to happen as, as more people are vaccinated and more people feel liberated and also more people are simply exhausted and want to get back to their normal lives. And then once you reach a certain level, as Israel has of uh, vaccinations, the number goes down nationwide. And now they're, they're ready to uh, pretty much reopen. That's right. I mean, that, but that's why you know, this is so maddening, because um, the administration continues to act as if the daily infection rate is connected to something that the American people aren't doing, but are supposed to be doing. 
It's not true. Everyone, there's no one that doesn't know what to do at this point. And, then, and, 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 you know, overwhelmingly, there's no way to get them to do it any more than they're all already doing it. What could change and what undoubtedly will change the trajectory of the disease is, um, the, the increased, uh, 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 daily, um, vaccinations. Um, that's on them. That's on the administration. That's, that's, that's not on us. We have two measures of case increase, right? One is absolute numbers of cases day by day. And the other is percentages of tests that come back positive. And it is entirely stands to reason that in the United States, in which according to the last number I saw, I think now a third of eligible adults have been vaccinated at least once that of the remaining populations that are compelled to get tested, that that number in percentage terms will increase because you're going to have a third of people who are no longer going to test who, if they tested, would test negative. So the population of testing that is going to be positive is going to increase as a matter of plain logic because you're going to have a third of people out who would otherwise test negative if everybody tested. If 100% of the population tested every day, the percentage numbers would decline by a third, would have declined in aggregate by a third period without even, as opposed to going up, which is what they do as remember, this is why Trump had that insane thing in April or whenever it was when he was angry at increased testing because he didn't like that the numbers rose when more people tested. Well, and there's also right now, at least from from the perspective of uh, case numbers rising, I know for anyone who has kids who do sports in, in places that have been on total lockdown, like they have been here in D.C., the public school system is allowing some sports outdoors with masks to resume with testing. So like my kids have to get tested every week, every other week to do the sport. And there are kids who are coming back testing positive, you know, not mine or any of the kids who they know, but you, you have a whole population that actually can't be vaccinated yet that's in closer quarters with one another in a way they haven't been for an entire year. You would expect a few cases of it, but this is an extremely low risk population. So in that sense, even a positive isn't necessarily a death sentence. Okay, we need to talk now even more angrily about the Biden administration because even though Rochelle Walensky had a you know nervous collapse in front of the American people, and even though Biden uh, played his um, <clears throat> I'm Churchill without the eloquence, so I'm going to tell you all the bad things that are happening without without the noble conclusion of the Dunkirk speech, just like your life is horrible, everything is terrible, thanks very much, you know, keep my approval ratings up, right? That's Biden was Kamala Harris yesterday. Um, Kamala Harris, and I'm now going to say something ad hominem because I this is how I feel. Kamala Harris does not have children. Kamala Harris did not have children. She has stepchildren who are adults. And Kamala Harris yesterday made the most disgust, said one of the most disgusting things that any politician has ever said with her bizarre cackling amusement at her own cleverness about how, <clears throat> well, now 
that uh, parents have had to stay at home with their children. Now they know how hard it is to be a teacher. You know what? Screw you and the horse you rode in on. Okay, can I? What, one thing that, about when, yeah. where did she say that? So she was at a, she was at some sort of like promoting the uh, the the virus bill uh, thing. But she, look, it's worse because can we can, can we make the twenty twenty four election sooner rather than later? I mean, she Her, is the biggest gift to Republicans that's come terrible. around. It's Hillary. But she, here's the thing: as a as a as an occasional nervous giggler myself, I, I had some sympathy at first with Kamala, particularly on the campaign trail when she'd get in a spot and she'd do her kind of nervous cackle. But at this point, they, she sort of embraced the cackle, and I think that's a problem. She really should not be taking the message that the most egregious examples of the teachers unions in this country have been promoting all year, which is, ha ha, you only used us as babysitters. And now you'll see, you'll see how terrible okay. it is for your own children. I, I have Awful. to read the, I have to read the quote. Okay. This was actually on Friday. I'm sorry. It wasn't yesterday. I think we only saw it yesterday. Uh, she was at the West Haven Child Development Center in Connecticut on Friday, and she said, more people are seeing that, yeah, affordable child care is a big deal. More parents are seeing the value of educators when they <laughs> had to bring their kids home and say we're not paying them nearly enough. <laughs> yeah. and she doesn't know what she's okay. talking about. I mean, that's uh, the attitude for most parents toward teachers is decidedly negative. <laughs> not yes. the teachers, the teachers unions, which, of course, control the Biden administration's education policy. And, you know, I wish I saw somewhere uh, somebody remarked that, you know, Biden disagrees with the unions. He wants to reopen schools. It would help if he took some measure, some proactive measure to actually speed that along. And, of course, it's hard as president since you have state and local control of schools. But nonetheless, they have they have not been on the sides of parents. Here's the problem. There are very few parents in the United States. And, and, you know, and, and you see this and you see it in the numbers, the, the, the split between parents' attitudes towards reinstating schooling and the public's attitudes are vastly different. And that's because the constituency of parents of, of, of uh, households with children is school shrinking. Children. School age yeah. children is shrinking in the United States and thus their political clout is lessening as well. It is a, it is an extraordinary fact. I mean, now, of course, there are parents and grandparents. So grandparents theoretically double the number of people who theoretically have a connection to school-age children. Um, it's a distant one. It doesn't, <laughs> right. It is, a, it is a distant one. And this goes to all sorts of things, like things we can't even begin to sort of go into yet, like, or you know that we can really understand, like this latest Gallup poll about how Fewer than 50% of Americans now uh, have a, a membership uh, or attend church. Um, I mean, we, we are going through a civilizational shift in the United States away from what I would consider, and maybe some of what we're talking about here goes to this, uh, the communitarian bonds that come not only from living in communities together, but from having the same life cycle experiences that just, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, everybody went through, right? Everybody, almost everybody got married. Almost everybody at some point in their lives had children. Almost everybody, you know, for some period of 20, 25 years, most able-bodied adult males had been in the military. You know, there's a whole thing that happened. And now we have this disaggregation of, of, of society in which we do not have common experiences, uh, and we do not have common bonds of 
<clears throat> like I say, sort of life cycle happenings. And and we have a country in which uh, the you know three of the four of us who have who have school aged children are going through an experience that people who do not have children cannot even begin to understand, including the vice president of the United States, who should shut her yapper when she is talking about crap that she obviously not only doesn't understand but is openly willing to be wildly offensive about, you know, when she stays up all night with a sick kid, then I'm going to listen to her talk about what it's like for parents when they need to have help, you know? I mean, this is outrageous what it's happened also, here. It's also, by the way, kind of a weirdly anti-feminist message for someone who's constantly touting her, I'm the first female vice president uh, thing, because a lot of the women, we know that a lot of women have either uh, willingly or unwillingly left the labor force in order to take care of those kids who can't go to school every day because they there's no alternative for them. And that's actually something that the feminist left has been railing about, how unfair the COVID pandemic has been to women. She's endorsing that with that kind of thinking. It's not it's actually not even uh, stepping back and looking at the broader picture and her own constituency there. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry to rant, but you know, like I, I just I just you know it, it, I couldn't I honestly could not believe what I saw, and I think Matt is right that in a larger political sense, we need to look at what Kamala Harris has said and done. And I would say this, which is that absent her uh, ascending to the presidency uh, uh, because of tragedy, um, uh, what we have seen of her, not only in her own presidential campaign, but really since she became the vice presidential nominee and the vice president, should not uh, in, should not lead. Uh, Democrats and followers of the Democratic Party and believers in the wonders of this first, you know, uh, BIPOC uh, vice president to think that her path to the Oval Office is one that is more likely than not, because her tone deafness is really something to be watched very closely. And that is something, granted, like, I didn't know that Joe Biden was going to turn into somebody who had uh, a, a, a really sincere uh, connection to pr- propriety of tone so age may age and circumstance may teach people things that i don't expect that they do but um she is not good at this matt you you're a you're a you're a close watcher of these things well i mean you know uh, harris was selected uh, to be the vice presidential nominee because she did little harm. She was the safest choice. And Biden uh, took the safest choice that his was the safest choice of campaigns. And uh, but she didn't help. If you look at uh, both of the exit poll or the voter survey, uh, she didn't help the ticket in any measurable way. Uh, And and there's some anecdotal evidence. She might have heard it. Um, And then uh, since then, since coming to office, but she got into that flap with Manchin. Right. She goes on West Virginia television, uh, acts high handedly toward toward West Virginia and and, uh, the most important senator in the country. Uh, She makes comments like this. Biden gives her the task of fixing the border. And then I love this. Then her team goes, no, no, well, she's not actually going to fix the border. She's going to engage in diplomacy with the Northern Triangle country. Oh, well, that's easier to do than fix the border. You know, I'm actually, I'm on her side. Yeah, we don't, we don't, because Biden did what Obama used to do to Biden, which is give him all the thankless, okay, Joe, it's your time to cure cancer. Good luck with that, you know? Uh, So so Biden gave, (laughs) all right, Kamala, you're in charge of the border. 
Um, yeah, I, I, look, everybody who knows her in the Senate uh, has, has never said that she is um, the most impressive uh, senator or the greatest political talent of her generation. So, uh, yeah, in an open seat situation, I, I think her um, uh, her path to the presidency is is much more difficult than people imagine. But look, Biden's the president, and uh, I, one thing, I, not to shift topics too much, though. But one thing, no, I'm, ship him. I'm, ship very, him all I'm very I'm very frustrated away. with a lot of Republicans right now because they don't seem to recognize if they're even aware of how popular Biden is and 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 why he's popular. And 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 this is this is I think damaging for Republicans because right now Republicans are you know the, the portrait of Biden that they have in their heads is that he's a senile old fool he's not in control of the administration um, you know the leftist forces are manipulating him now some of the latter might be true <laughs> but um, but nonetheless he is popular he's very popular and he's popular because why his comportment demeanor and behavior that's it. When you look at those numbers of the um, uh, of his approval on COVID and the vaccinations, you have to ask yourself: What policy difference has there been between the between the, the Trump administration and the Biden administration? Answer: None. The only one I can think of is the federal mask mandate, which is right. you know it's trifling. It's trifling. Right. But in terms okay. of the actual I want to. I want to continue with this conversation, but let me just take it because this is uh, very interesting. And uh, but I just need to take a quick break to tell you guys about my new desk chair that should be your new desk chair, the X chair. Let me tell you about the X chair. It's a it's a, a desk chair uh, comes in a box. You assemble. It takes 10, 15 minutes, and it is the best desk chair I've ever had. Uh its secret is the patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back. And let's add to that their new XHMT technology that provides heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk. Uh, it come, goes right to your core. It helps increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that make working from the X chair a joy. The X chair using this XHMT technology even has four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when I'm sore. So instead of my old uncomfortable office chair, I look forward now to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs, and unlike luxury supercars, it's comfortable, because every time I've ever been in a luxury supercar, I'm like two inches off the ground, and my back starts killing me, and that is the opposite of the X-Chair, which is now on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS, X-W-H-E-E-L-S, for free X-Wheel Bladecasters, xchaircommentary.com. Matt, you know, I, I after Biden's press conference last week, I felt that I was somewhat alone in saying that people were misinterpreting on the right in particular how skilled Biden was in that press conference. Um, First of all, aside from not making any really uh, glaring errors, even though you may think that when he stuttered or had a little bit of a trouble completing his, th- his thought or, you know, was looking at a cheat sheet with all the, you know, like the, 
like the the you know the portrait book that uh, Kingsfield uses in the paper chase, so he knows who all the students are when he calls on them. Whatever it was that he he had struck exactly the tone that he wished to strike. He said he made the points that he wanted to make, and that his whole thing was. I'm a nice guy, but I'm not that nice a guy. But, you know, it's really nice that people think I'm nice, but I'll be what, well, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, there is a, there is a misunderestimation, as George W. Bush would say, of the political skills that this guy who did not display enormous amounts of, let's say, public facing political skills in the course of his Senate career or even as a vice president is now displaying at the age of 78. Well, look, I mean, uh, Biden's the same person he's always been. Uh, but the Biden campaign made a very interesting strategic choice last year, which is to say, um, we're going to we're going to uh, put him into seclusion. You're not going to see him. And when, when you do see him, we're going to set the bar so low that that he can simply step over it and people will go, oh, he's wonderful. And then he's going to go into hiding again. And it's great because in, when you con- for him politically that is because when you control it control your your guy this this well and you only allow him to show the side that people find appealing then uh, you're you're going to be able to um, maintain the level of support he's maintained up to this point now look I, I, it's going to fade I think there's no doubt about that especially as um, the the majority becomes. Uh, more willing to to break barriers and to um, and to uh, pursue its agenda, no matter no matter the cost. And as also as people become more familiar with the actual consequences of the, of the policies, um, uh, th- that will that will change. But nonetheless, he's in a strong political position now. And I just wish Republicans were more uh, and the right were more aware of that because that that clues you in into how you might be able to win again. Right. If it's if it's a matter of personality and kind of um, uh, comportment and behavior, that kind of suggests, you know what, don't nominate candidates who immediately alienate 51 percent of the country through their comportment and behavior. Just a just a tip. But but I mean, of course, you're right. But it's a terrible time for the Republicans on this point, because they are still they continue to be electrified um, by uh, a candidate who, like for the first time, like, you know, abolished conservative comportment. You know, that's that's rendered it sort of a, a phony political thing that we don't do anymore. You know, so to so to even to even be toned down is now to be suspect. Well, right. and one, now, one oh. other point on, on the Biden strategy, if I may, I think Matt's absolutely right. It was a brilliant strategy as a campaigner. It's worked in this first few months of his administration. But I think the risk is that going forward, if they maintain it, every time he is trotted out to give a press conference, rarely, or, or stops and talks to reporters briefly or has an appearance you know, every few months, the scrutiny level is a lot higher because we don't see him much. He doesn't communicate directly with people on Twitter or anything. Thank God, I say. But there is, I, I think, a high. there should be a higher level of scrutiny. And this is happening even with a press corps that wants to smooth over every single error he makes. I mean, he was finally given four Pinocchios by the Washington Post for lying through his teeth about the Georgia election bill. So, I mean, it's going to happen. And I think that they, they have to they have to balance that against, you know, having him a little more engaged with the public. Um. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, bite back at you a little bit here because, of course, he gave the press conference on Thursday, and then he gave a, a an address yesterday. He spoke about 
COVID. That was, you know, it's not like he was in hiding. He did the press conference. He then came out and said, I want mask mandates. I think for the reason that Matt articulated, which is that they're, they're worried about the political impact of rising case levels. And he wants to make it appear as though he is addressing it and trying to nip something in the bud that might be like a real problem. But, you know, it occurs to me as you guys were talking that this is some weird flip around of an objection that the left used to make about the right all the time, which is that the right was power hungry, provocative, and uh, and and sought policies that were out of the political mainstream, but fronted them with politicians, in particular Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, who sought who sanded down the sharp edges. And appeared to be nice and caring and a vunk, so sort of person you would want to have a beer with, and all of that stuff. And not that Obama didn't have his own version of this to some extent, but that, um, but that what we're what we're seeing now is in contrast to Donald Trump's extreme provocations, that having a president who stands there and says. Can't we just, I really do want to deal with, you know, I would love to have a a nice relationship with Republicans. Like that's, you know, we're all Americans. We're all in this together. Come on, you know. And then you look at this and you think, okay, I understand that the right loved uh, Trump's uh, confrontationalism and that they had been prepped for it for 20 years by by Rush and by a kind of, uh, you know, uh, angry culture of resistance to liberal orthodoxies and all of that. But what an unforced error. I mean, just reminds you of what an unforced error 2020 was. Trump's decision to to downplay and downgrade a force over which he had no control rather than meeting it in that way that, say, George W. Bush said in, you know, after 9-11, we have found our mission and our moment because of his own misguided understanding that his best approach to things was to be a cheerleader for the things he liked and to be really nasty about the things he didn't like, you can see how with a with a tweak of his own behavior, the entire political history of the United States could have been different. And we wouldn't have a $2 trillion coronavirus relief package. And we wouldn't have a $3 trillion infrastructure package that I assume will not become law but will nonetheless, you know, move the Overton window toward government to toward larger Washington control and 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 all of that just from the fact that Biden who is not all that convincing a nice guy for anybody who has actually watched him for 40 years uh has been able to make such hay out of it. Um so let me let me let me ask you this then. Um, Wait, can, I, can I just yeah, jump yeah, in at one point here? Yeah. The, uh, just to get to the potential, another potential downside for uh, Biden uh, about sort of conducting himself this way. This links back to the, the earlier part of the podcast. Um, part of what we are disgusted by when, uh, when Rochelle Walensky gets up there uh, and sort of, you know, says she has a feeling of impending doom and holds back tears. And, and um, uh, uh, sort of when Biden came out and uh, I guess on the, when it was the year for the first year of the pandemic, he was sort of, you know, mourning with the country and then sort of never stopped mourning uh, after that. Um, the anti-Trump 
empathy message um, is getting to be too much, right? I mean, I mean that 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 is the problem here. There's the risk I'm, of becoming maudlin if it, yeah. if it if it doesn't kind of take new circumstances into account. I mean, I, until until it starts proving a negative for Biden's performances uh, on the on the on the pandemic, I, I'm not sure I could go that far. I mean, it, it's getting too much for you. And it's getting too much for me. But, but I mean, this is the fact that uh, right now, independents largely support what he's doing. And I think it's simply because he is not in their faces every day. And just to, to piggyback on something, what you were saying uh, earlier, Abe, you know, there, I do think there is a way that one can satisfy the desire of the right for a fighter, you know, uh, and not alienate the independents with whom you have to win an election. So um, the, the challenge for the prospective candidates in 2022 and 2024 will be finding that, that medium. Um, but it's very hard to do when the, uh, you know, the, the master of Mar-a-Lago is still wants to play uh, an important role uh, in, in national politics. You know, there are all these terms, right? There are the classic American terms in politics, the happy warrior, you know, like that. And, of course, obviously, um, one of the things that was uh, – that, 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 that typified uh, Donald Trump and made him such a singular figure was the extreme personalization – of politics, which is continuing apace, right? He just made this 600-word statement attacking Deborah Burks and Fauci, um, you know, claiming that, you know, they didn't want vaccines and they didn't, and he did all of this and he did all of that, that, that the thing that motivated him, that, that got his juices flowing, and that was the thing that pushed his buttons was a sense of personal aggrievement and personal affront. And it's not that one doesn't understand that he was a uniquely a figure treated with unique hostility in the course of American history by his by his rivals because he was but of course that was also because it worked you know they pushed his buttons and he reacted and his reaction i think arguably based on what matt is saying about where wh- how biden is triumphing at this moment at least in public opinion um they pushed his buttons and he fell for it and lost the house the senate and uh and and the uh and the presidency because he couldn't resist the notion that every time somebody said something nasty about him he had to go back and be twice as nasty um and that's the lesson that the lesser politicians are learning from him Right. I mean, it's it's that it's this constant confrontation all the time, every moment, every day, every fight, every and all of this. And I just outside of the states in which they dominate 60 to 70 percent of the political life, there is no evidence or indication that that is going to be a winning way to rally support. Um and that those independent numbers are real. I would just say one other thing, which is that it's not just on COVID, though. And this is where it really is worrying for the right, although I think the results of public policy will therefore be telling. You know, he's got these very high numbers on the on the coronavirus on on the two trillion dollar bill. 
in the high 60s, low 70s. Like that, that is not an unpo- that is a popular piece of legislation. The rubber's going to meet the road because it's going to have real world consequences, unlike whether or not you like him the way he talks about the about about the vaccines or whatever. Yeah, I mean, on the bill, it it never surprised me that when you you message something as coronavirus relief, the large majority, a supermajority of the public, two thirds of the public, including majorities of Republicans, are going to support it. I mean, the question there is uh, what will actually happen as a result. And Biden administration believes that somehow when voters go to the polls next year, they're going to remember the stimulus payment that they that they saved in their bank account. For you know, 18 months ago. And that's just not the case. And, you know, it's true. The Biden administration, uh, one flaw in uh, we were talking about the, the flaws in the design plan for, you know, keeping Biden con- um, uh, cabined off, releasing him at certain times and controlled environments where you can step right over that bar they've set so low is unanticipated events. And, and, and you know, what is his weakest issue? It's immigration, which they didn't anticipate. They foolishly, in my opinion, ripped up all the Trump policies, not realizing or or so high on their moralistic humanitarianism, they didn't understand the consequences of what would happen. And sure enough, what's happening on the border is his worst number. And and he he really had no plan at the beginning. Now they're trying to do it. Like we said, they they put um, Kamala in there. Um, Maybe maybe that will help. So the problem with having this very controlled presidency is unanticipated events, which come to dominate every presidency, including the one that we were just discussing. Right. Um, so this, this is, this is off. This is something that they're going to have to consider. It happened too with the, the two mass shootings, right? They, all of a sudden they had planned, um, uh, more COVID messaging, getting ready for the build back better plan. And now they have to deal with the politics of gun control, which I think politically, uh, smart of Biden to kind of say, well, we'll let Congress deal with that, right? He's not yeah. going to get off. He's not going to get off track by engaging in a, a big fight over gun control. But for the um, for the infrastructure bill, which he'll release uh, this week in Pittsburgh, you know, the message is going to be a little bit different. Um, it's not going to be as popular right off the bat as as coronavirus relief. And then when you get into the details, especially the tax component. As you suggest, John, I mean, it's, it's going to be a much more difficult go. And you kind of already saw that with Buttigieg, right? Um, uh, Buttigieg uh, on TV saying, well, we're going to start taxing people by the by the mile. <laughs> you yeah. know, 48 hours later. Every well, suburban voter heard that, yeah, I hope. Oh, any driver, any, <laughs> yeah. any, yeah, anyone. Um, uh, we're going to, you know, those electric cars that we're, we're, we're putting you into, you know, with your, with the heavy tax subsidies. Well, we're going to claw that back through the, the um, tax per mile. I mean, so within 48 hours, 72 hours, he, he's, he walked it back. Well, that's just one idea for entertaining. You know, we're not, we're not seriously. So, you know, it's, it's a strong, the Biden team is in a strong position, I think, for the moment. That's the key. And that's, right. and somehow they, they're interpreting that in two different ways. Uh, one is, uh, they don't think for the moment. They think, well, this is this is the new uh, new deal that we're starting. On the other hand, they do understand that's for the moment, and that's why they seem so driven to push through <laughs> whatever whatever yeah. policy they can before the midterm election. They they are challenged in one way that will be very interesting to watch, and this is a, a longer term thing, right? So one of the hallmarks of the Trump administration was its extreme indiscipline. Right. Open fighting, lots of firings. You know, how many 
national security advisors were there? Seven? Were there four? Okay, but uh, uh, you know, we had uh, he switched he switched NSAs and uh, chiefs of staff with the it year. It felt like seven. Right. It felt it was, like okay. Seven. Okay. He started okay. with the new season. Okay. Yeah. Uh, multiple secretaries of state, multiple secretaries of defense, right? I mean, extre- uh, uh, leaking the likes of which we have never seen. Um, you know, ma- ma- everybody in the White House having Maggie Haberman on, on speed dial, right? And so the Biden team appears to be very controlled and contained and disciplined uh, and, and unleaky and all of that. But Biden gives Kamala the border. Kamala says, I don't want the border. I'm going to negotiate with Central America. Well, you know, we have a secretary of state. That's his job. That's not her job. What does she know about Central America? Bupkis. She knows nothing about Central America. And we have no idea what's going to happen there. Right now, the secretary of state and the national security advisor are like buddy, buddy, friendly, like no, like no two such officials have ever been. That's not going to last. The bureaucratic imperatives are going to cause friction there. And then you have this entire team of cabinet secretaries who, like Pete Buttigieg, have existed in themselves in political frameworks in which they have no experience of serious blowback. I mean, Javier Becerra, right, who is um, – Javier Becerra is a politician who op- has operated with an incredibly narrow left-wing bandwidth, and he is now – as is Alejandro Mayorkas, right? These two, you know, two serious and important officials, they are going to find themselves on the knife's edge of extremely controversial issues about which the right has been organized for decades and is better organized and more serious and has more counterproposals and more ideas and more this and more that than Javier Becerra has ever even had in his head. And how they're going to react to all of that and then create unforced errors of their own, that's where the the honeymoon and all of that, when it ends, is going to end with some tears if they can't maintain this iron discipline that seems to be coming from Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff, on down. And that's just something to, as we are going into April, it's only been two and a half months that the administration has been in office, the things to watch for are the are the extremes of pressure that these that these political organizations find themselves under and you know there are things that they escape from i mean i think weirdly enough uh, the the two shootings they escaped from because they didn't have an answer they don't really know what to say the press has decided since they're not to push it for some reason but you know what if the suez canal what if the ship had been trapped there for another 6 weeks instead of having been, you know, freed. I mean, that's the classic, that's like Deepwater Horizon. That's the classic thing that happens you can't anticipate, that you have no control over, but that is going to have this outsized impact on the public image of how much you as the American president can work your will to help the American people. Right, or if, if there's another coronavirus uh, wave, right? I mean, and, right. and that's that's what you saw there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What was it? What Harold Nicholson said? Uh, said events your boy events, right? That political <laughs> right. cliche yeah. that you know why what happens in, um, in politics. Um, I, I but Buttigieg though, it's hilarious because you see the um, intra democratic uh, squabbling over the potential 2024 nomination here. No. Remember, Buttigieg was supposed to be UN ambassador. 
But that didn't happen. And who would have an interest in preventing Pete Buttigieg from living in the Ritz-Carlton in New York City next to all those Democratic donors and speaking French to them for four years? Hmm, I wonder, might it have been the vice president who uh-huh. decided, you know what? Let's <laughs> you cackle. <laughs> let's, stick, let's stick Pete in the Department of Transportation, you know, and, and kind of in the middle of nowhere in South in Southwest. Um, and, and this is true. You can see it with them. Um, if you notice that the right's obsessed with this, but it is funny to watch that all of the uh, labeling on the White House um, websites or um, official communications is now the Biden Harris administration, right? So you have they're on they're on equal footing there, and and you know he's helping. I think he's helping her a lot too. I think he, uh, speaking of Biden, I think he's um, treating her as almost like a president in training. You know, so we're going to yeah. have yeah. So sit on that call. Uh, that Blinken will have with the uh, the Northern Triangle uh, foreign ministers, you know, and, and learn learn that. And we're having our lunches every week. And, you know, we're going to get you up to speed, Kamala. So, um, And we uh, see it. I mean, you, yeah. she's shadowing him the way, you know, a, a new employee shadows, like, uh, <laughs> you know, someone, someone who does the same job. Yeah. She's all the charm of a vice principal, though. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the problem, is that even if he yeah. gives her every opportunity, I guarantee she's going to find a way to squander it. I mean, she's just not a good retail politician. Right. So, so uh, there are, yeah, there are green shoots of, of decay. And so, I mean, this is talk about a mixed metaphor. I mean, <clears throat> there are hints, uh, penumbras and emanations of trouble ahead uh, that uh, everybody who is finding the policy uh, desiderata of the Biden administration uh, troubling, to say the least, uh, should be watching very closely and hoping, as Matt indicated at the beginning, or as we were talking about, hoping that Republicans and conservatives don't screw up their ability to screw up by screwing up in the alternate direction and giving them uh, an easy and ready target to play against. Well, I mean, you see it in some of these Senate primaries, John, uh, that the Republicans seem eager to screw (laughs) screw up. You know, you're going to have five open seats in the Senate next year in a 50-50 Senate that uh, you could take back control of of, uh, both houses of Congress. But it does seem in in these very early moments that we're getting ready for a replay almost of the 2010 election where, you know, you're able to recapture the house, but because of candidate selection and these in open, the Senate, in the yeah. Senate you, you delay your opportunity uh, to win back the Senate. And again, in the case of the Obama administration, you delayed it four years because yeah. the same problem happened in the, in the reelect year. So uh, I think I, you know, conservatives are like Palestinians in the sense that they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> and uh, and with that, that reminds me that sometime this week we will have a, lo- a larger conversation about when, what went on in the Israeli elections, which we haven't really really mentioned, and which are um, fascinating beyond belief. Uh, uh, but uh, but for now, Matt Continetti, thank you so much for for joining us, uh, and uh, for uh, Abe, Christine, and the absent Noel Rothman. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>